This morning we continue our study of wisdom literature through Proverbs, and our texts for this morning come from Proverbs 15, 18, and 25. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened calf with hatred. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. They find refuge in him. The rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. This is God's word. So we can take the Proverbs as we've been learning this summer and we can follow a particular theme and string the Proverbs together that coincide with that theme so that we can look at God's wisdom as in through a prism that cascades different colors and see different nuances. And this morning with these Proverbs that I've selected here, we're going to consider uh, the wisdom of being people of self-control and uh, the vices of discontent and having no self-control. So before we uh, explore these, um, these texts, I want to just remind you that Proverbs is not particularly technique-driven. That's not the way the literature is. And the best way to come to the Bible is to understand what the literature, what, what genre am I looking at here? If you walk into a library, uh, I was about to say blockbuster, wow. It's, and and my, my, my mind quickly was like, don't say that, say library. If you walk into a library and you go down an aisle with a particular genre, I mean, back in the day you did do this at Blockbuster, by the way, but, and you, you, you have to know what genre you're looking at, that sets your expectations, that puts you in a particular framework for what you're dealing with. The Proverbs are not technique-driven. We are a technique-driven culture. Kitchener-Waterloo is a monstrously technique-driven city. So we're swimming in the waters of technique, and we're coming to wisdom literature, which is not really concerned about spelling out for you, proverb after proverb, the right decision. It is more deeply concerned about becoming the kind of person who loves the right things and will therefore make the right decision. We would much prefer to say, just tell me the right decision. But that's not how this literature is. We have to sit and meditate and think about our life and our heart and our mind and our appetites and our worship and all kinds of things. Say, how do I become the kind of person that loves the right things that will therefore, from loving the right things, make the right choices? Uh, Very quickly, before I get to the three points that I want to look at this morning, I want to make a quick note, very quick note, for those of you that are here this morning exploring Christian faith. Wisdom literature and much of the New Testament instruction for sort of the development of character and the lives in which Christians live, that's what the gospel does. It's not what the gospel is. The whole entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is not gospel. Gospel is a Greek word, euangelion, which means good news. So there is a very, the gospel is a very specific message found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels, which is where all of Scripture is pointing towards Jesus Christ, the perfect life that he lived, his atoning death, and his divine resurrection, the significance of which is because humanity from the beginning chose not to be worshipers of God, but instead to be our own God, to forsake God, to live in difference with God. That brought disorder, destruction, the things that Susan was referring to earlier that we talked about at camp with the kids. 
just a disordering of human life, a disordering of flourishing. And because of that, the good news of the gospel is that our God is not a God of indifference who's from the heavens barking wisdom literature at us, saying, get these principles right, live this way, and I will accept you. The good news of the gospel is God incarnated and came in Jesus Christ, fulfilled the law, and if we trust in Christ and his perfection, we are accepted and loved. So grace, salvation by grace alone apart from works, that's what the gospel is. This wisdom literature, this is what the gospel does. What it does is it makes us want to emulate and reflect our God. We desire to do these things, not for acceptance, but from it. So let's move on this morning and look at um, the three things that I want to pull from this, these particular Proverbs. We're going to look at the problem of discontent, the principle of self-control, and the spiritual discipline that fosters self-control. The problem of discontent. The problem of discontent is that discontent leads to restlessness, and restlessness erodes self-control. If you look at chapter 25 and verse 28, you get this image of a city with the walls broken down. And it says, if you lack self-control, you're like a city with the walls broken down. Can't manage your spirit. Um, in, in Hebrew literature, heart does not mean, we think of heart like emotions. Whenever heart is in the Old Testament scriptures, it means your core values. The core of what you're all about. And when, and when the word spirit shows up in the Hebrew here and elsewhere... Spirit in the Hebrew means the energies, the passions, the driving force, the, the compelling nature, that thing that's almost working on autopilot in you, the longings, the desires. And so this is inviting us to see the problem of discontent. If I'm a person of self-control, something has eroded it, and it's been this restlessness, this bubbling discontent makes me I'm like a city uh, without, without walls. And in the ancient world... A city without walls was a siege waiting to happen. It was only a matter of time. That's why the entire book of Nehemiah, not to do sermon inception and preach another sermon, but the entire book of Nehemiah is surrounding the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. When Nehemiah found, finds out the walls of God's city are broken down, he weeps because he knows it's just a matter of time. Things are not going to be okay. A city without walls in the ancient world was not okay. It was volatile and vulnerable. It's just a matter of time. If I am a person of, that lacks self-control, if I have a bubbling narrative of discontent, it's just a matter of time before something goes sideways. So we're given this really provocative image. Now I want to contrast that from the, the image from chapter 15, 16, and 17. If you look at it, remember it says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. So we've got this image now that the fe- fear, by the way, is not phobic, like I'm afraid of tarantulas. Um, it, can, it can be used that way, but in context, the fear of the Lord is the awe of God. So it's not saying if I'm terrified that God's going to, is like a cosmic ogre that's going to punish me. That's not the driving force in the life of the Christian. The awe of God, the, the sheer majesty, the magnitude. It's like there's something of his love and his grace that in the person of Jesus that is a compelling force for me. And that awe creates simplicity. 
in the soul. It creates a contentment. Do you see the simplicity there? Better a little. You got a little bit with the awe of God, you're living a happy and joyous life. You're living a very simple life. This contrast from the treasure with trouble. And uh, somewhere along the line, you see at the end of verse 15, uh, 17 there, there's this dinner. One is a simple dinner of herbs. The other one is a big feast with a fatted calf. But somewhere along the line, love was sacrificed. Because there's no joy at the big feast. There's a lot of stuff. But there's no love there. So somewhere along the line, the rumbling narrative of discontent led to chronic self-control, a loss of self-control, which somehow inevitably eroded the relationships around the table with the fatted calf so that it doesn't matter that there's a feast here, there's no love around the table. We're looking at our watches. We're, talk- we're on our way to the dinner talking about what time we're leaving. Something went wrong. I have found in my own life, and maybe you can identify with this, I've been quick to defend having stuff. I would say things like, well, you know, I've read the, the Bible, and the Bible is not against stuff. The Bible's against stuff having me. There, solved it. I've done that. I Sometimes I still fall into that. But as I really think about how quick I am to defend stuff, I think that alone deserves some self-diagnosis. And I'm looking at this, and I'm meditating on it this week, and I'm thinking, you know, as I, as I examine the life of, of Jesus and the apostles and the early church, it struck me that it's not, it's not like they, Jesus' message was, get your heart right, and then you can accumulate things. It's not, I mean, Jesus' heart was right, and it's not like he led a life of accumulating things and said, behold the example. Behold the example of having your heart right, loving God perfectly, loving your neighbors perfectly, and behold my crib. I've got a four-camel garage, son. Like, it didn't manifest in Jesus that way. And it didn't manifest in the apostles that way. And some of you are so uncomfortable. Like, oh, man, at the end of the sermon, the application is sell all my stuff. Maybe, if you're in idolatry to it, but that's not actually the end of the sermon. So, the apostles, it's not like they're like, okay, we got our heart right. We understand the gospel. Whoa, Christ has fulfilled the law. I'm free now to accumulate stuff. Same with the first church. Didn't do it. But I find that whenever there is that rumbling discontent, that's where this thing goes. I'm not happy with a simple life. I'm not happy with simplicity. I want to have the treasure, and that treasure is certainly going to come with trouble. Now, we can go on and on and on about the implications of this, because, of course, we're not talking about sinful, terrible things necessarily. Right? You can have a glass of wine and that's a beautiful thing you can go for a run and that's a beautiful thing you can go to the gym and take care of your health and that's a beautiful thing or you can unwind with a book or you can close your studies and enjoy some video games or you can put your headphones on and shut the world out and bask in some music or you can work on your craft or sharpen your vocational skills or go to a conference to grow in your vocational skills or you can enjoy sweet and savory treats you can go shopping these are all wonderful things But if all of these things are a way for dealing with life, if they are the way that I deal with stress, the way that I deal with anxiety, the way that I define myself, get a sense of identity, all of a sudden, there is no awe of God. There's this awe of these things, and something has become disproportionate. And so whenever we have our passions that we're sort of 
chasing without self-control that never goes good. And we see that in the, dim, in the dinner image. There's this movie Susan and I watched years ago. It's an old movie called Sabrina. And there's this one line that we never forgot in Sabrina where Sabrina comes back from Paris and she's just had all these incredible experiences. And she says um, to the guy who's trying to court her, he, she says, sometimes more isn't better. Sometimes more is just more. And there's something about the fear and the awe of God that quiets our hearts, that we are quite happy with our simplicity. Let's move on to the second thing, the principle of self-control. So after the problem of disconsent, let's just take a quick minute to think about this principle. Um, The wise are able to choose what God calls important over what our appetite insists is most urgent. If you look at chapter 18 and verse 10, the name of the Lord is the strong tower. Look at this imagery, this picture of security, this strong tower. I want you to notice they're running to the tower. So for you and I, it's, it's just interesting poetry. In the ancient world, some of them would have been like, I've had to do that before. Like, What's the immediate context for this? There's an assumption, and the assumption is there's an attack. There's a threat. When the attack or the threat comes, and you feel threatened or attacked, or anxious or worried or sad or lonely or a myriad of things, you run. Where do you run? It's like a reflex. And, we, and so the image here is running to God, running to the name of God, running to the strong tower. It's assuming there's an attack. What is the ultimate security? I've borrowed from uh, Dr. James uh, K. Smith many times. He's the prof at... Uh, philosophy prophet Calvin College and he does a lot of writing for comment on other magazines and works and he's written a a handful of books one of them called um, You Are What You Love and in it he makes the argument that our heart is like a compass that it's it's not uh, at the hierarchy of this human soul the intellect but the appetite and he argues in the book that the heart is like a compass and whatever our magnetic north is that's where our life is headed uh, when I was in my 30s and I did uh, driving on a, a Shannonville Speedway, the first three hours of race school was just a- avoiding accidents. They spent three hours, they flooded the track at a, a fire truck there and they flooded the track so we were driving through waves of water and they made us lose control over and over and over and over and try and regain control so that when it happened, so that when it happened on the track, there's a, a reflex trained response. Run, that's what running to the tower is. It's not like they're in the ancient world and they, they built a city and they said, in the event that marauders breach the wall, you see that tower over there? You should run into it. Well, how do we do that? You'll figure it out when the attack is on. No. Do you know how many times they went? How do you get an entire little village into a safe tower? You practice that thing. So there is a lot here for us to understand in the principle of self-control, the picture of self-control, When something goes sideways, the training kicks in. How have I trained myself? What is the liturgy of my life? As I said at the beginning of the sermon, none of this saves us. None of this this self-control makes God look down and say, I accept you and love you and welcome you into my kingdom on the basis of your self-control. This is about enjoying and flourishing God and living into our new humanity. This is what the heart of grip by grace actually wants. You know, you notice that... Without the walls, uh, without the pattern and the practice that's, that's leading to that virtue, all that's left is vice. 
So you've got this image of running into the strong tower, or the other proverb of the city has no walls and it's just all that's left is, is vice, scrambling. These are the two pictures. Security versus tremendous emotional, mental vulnerability. Just kind of there for the taking. Self-control is the ability to recognize and choose that important thing over the urgent and the desired thing. We're running into the name of the Lord. We're going to focus on that now at the last point this morning, which is that spiritual discipline fosters, forges self-control in us. So we're going to, for the close of the sermon, consider this metaphor of running into the name. You know, the towers for them were literal, but the name is, it is poetic. So what could this provoke us to consider? I'm just going to get you started, of course, because the nature of wisdom literature is you have to go home and apply this. But I'm going to get you started. Running into the name, this is a poetic image of forging virtue through pattern and practice. I'm running into the name of the Lord. I'm running into the essence of who he is. I'm running continually to his presence. What does that mean? Who is he? This is really the the tale of, of, of two towers. Because notice... The other tower that's mentioned here. The, the, uh, it says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run in. They're safe. 1811 says the rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall in his own imagination. Key phrase. Now you may be sitting there thinking there's no need to spend any time on this because I'm not wealthy. However, if you're here and you're wealthy, then you ought to pay attention to this. But if you're here and you're not wealthy, don't dismiss yourself because what I've noticed, being a person who's not wealthy, is we can obsess about being wealthy. And I don't just mean obsess and fantasize about being wealthy, like what would I do if I won a million dollars? I mean actually buy in to the imagination that there is security in having wealth. That's why it keeps coming up over and over and over in the New Testament. That's why Jesus is like, here's another parable. This one's about a rich fool who thought the solution to life was building bigger barns, accumulate more stuff. So there's a pattern here and there is a uh, practice that is given to us that I think is just tremendously, tremendously wise because if we're running into the wrong thing, if I'm running into this thing that I think is, that I imagine is going to give me security, but it's not, um, I'm not going to be safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Safe from what? Well, safe from many things, but one of them perhaps being the addiction to insufficient puny gods. Running into something that offers me a temporal high and then this depressing but predictable diminishing return. You know, addictions begin when we use something to relieve, you know, distress But then that thing we used, it creates its own distress. First, I needed this thing to feel better. Now I need this thing to feel normal. And you know, the substance abuse is low-hanging fruit. We can easily go there as the church and go, oh, got it. Uh, You know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, if I'm not an alcoholic, or I'm not blasting my brains out every weekend on marijuana, or I'm not, uh, you know, going off in gratuitous sex, then I don't have an addiction. But there's such a wide range of addiction that all of us, everyone in this room, starting with myself, have the threat or somewhere on that scale of addiction of turning to something that we want to make our strong tower. Addiction can be obvious, like some of the, one, you know, the low-hanging fruit that gets mentioned often, but it can also be insidious because there's a lot of socially acceptable strong towers 
There's a lot of socially acceptable addictions. You know, if you stare into your phone, if I stare into my phone five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours a day, um, nobody's going to come up to us except for perhaps a parent and be like, you know, if you have a problem. It's a socially acceptable uh, addiction. It's unfair addiction because it's you versus teams of engineers and teams of psychologists who have ruminated and spent hundreds of millions of dollars to ensure that you, you physiologically want to keep looking at it. So if you just keep telling yourself, well, I'll just you know, try a little harder, you're, I don't know, you're kind of bringing a phone to a gunfight. Um, so you're going to need to come up with some pretty stringent ways to surgically remove the phone from your hand. Now, I'm not saying that in a condescending way like I'm somehow better than you are. I'm saying that because I've had to, like, I don't have, it didn't, wouldn't matter if I got rid of this phone and got a, a flip phone because the only thing I can do on it is my email and uh, text because I had to delete all the apps off it because I couldn't handle it. So I don't have any social media. I'm not telling you to delete your social media, but I deleted my social media. It's my strong tower. Oh, I didn't think the service went well today. I don't think I, the sermon was that great. Susan said to me, hey, great sermon, but I got some notes, which is, you know, every Sunday afternoon for me. And so, you know, I'm like, oh, boy, gosh. Oh, hey, I know. I'll go to my thousand Twitter followers who don't know me or live, you know, live with me or, or care about me, but they like everything that I tweet and they like all my blogs. and everything. I, Oh, I'm going to go to my Facebook. I'm going to go to my Instagram and curate the highlight reel of my ministry life. For me, it was game over. So that's why I'm like, you know, a cave dweller. I have no social media. I'm not telling you you need to do that. I'm just saying I recognize in my life, I'm not beating this thing. I haven't beaten it. Tomorrow's not looking good either. But what, what is that for you? I have no idea. A lot of socially acceptable towers, right? We live in a culture that runs on consumerism, perceived obsolescence. For some of you, it's like, the newest, shiniest thing is a non-discussion. You're spending your money on it. Tech, cars, toys, clothing, endless. The packages are just coming to the door. It never stops, never stops. You're like, whoa, easy preacher. Just get back to the Hebrew. Don't talk about this lifestyle. Just talk about the ancient languages. Don't talk to me about... But this is when you start massaging the Proverbs into our hearts and lives and our situations, we see what could this look like? These are strong towers. Pursuing the career at all costs. Relationships fall by the side, but, it, but our city will applaud you. You're killing your health for your good grades? Good job. That's how you get it done. Your mental health is in the basement, but your grades are getting higher? Good for you, because that's what it takes to succeed in the city. We will give you a name. We will name you. We will call you great. You can... The name of the Lord, when the awe of God realized that you're his child and he's already named you and you have a name and you don't need the city to name you, you'll be able to pursue your education and your vocational pursuits. You'll be able to do business and use your gifts and flourish in your vocations and be a, a real gift to wherever it is that you're working or in your own company and operate with integrity. You'll be able to do that without needing all of that stuff to name you. These are all strong towers in our city. And so we run into his name. I close with this. His name is his nature. It is sitting down and carving out time 
in pattern and practice and liturgy with the same kind of dedication that you give to your strong tower or whatever it is. I know I'm saying you're going to be in prayer and meditation for eight hours a day. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you're carving out time for prayer and meditation so that the pattern and the practice of renewal by the indwelling power of the Spirit, God's Word, that that begins to bleed into everything else that you're doing so that as a person of faith, your soul can run into the names of God. Your God of love. You can be healed by His love and not run out craving love. Your God of mercy so that you don't run out craving justification. Your God of great grace and great justice so you don't have to run out and try and justify yourself. Our God is that He calls Himself a God of peace and of provision. He is our shelter. He is our shield. The Lord God is a sun and shield. He is the lifter of our heads. He calls himself the great shepherd. He is the potter. He is the maker. I could go on and on and on about the names of God. And so it's just sitting down and realizing what is the rumbling, bubbling cauldron of discontent in my heart? And how does the name of God speak to that? You know, when I was talking to you earlier about my addiction with the social media and having thousands of people I didn't know be like, you're amazing. And I got to get rid of this. It's kryptonite. It was running to the name of God who is the the, the God who is my shelter. The God who gives me a name. The God who, the adoption narrative. I am your child. I don't need a thousand people I don't know to tell me who I am. I'm, what is it for you? What could that be? And we do this and we run into the name so that we can receive from his grace this pattern and this practice. Again, you may say, well, what of grace? You're talking of pattern and practice. This sounds like a lot of work. You know, there's two ditches on grace. The one ditch is that your salvation is always pending on the basis of your behavior. And it's, a, it's a, just an abhorrent destruction of the gospel. Paul writes about it in Galatians and says, let the person who preaches that be cursed. You're not saved by your self-control. So that's one ditch. But then the other ditch is, well, I'm saved by grace, and so I have no need to put into practice any sort of work or effort, and, and, and God will love me anyways. But that's another ditch, because that's not even what grace does. If at the end of the day there's no desire in your heart to say, I want to live according to the glory of the one who saved me in grace, there's something wrong with my understanding of the gospel of grace. And so by faith, this is what the heart's gripped by grace actually want because there's nothing in the human experience that just flows to us with no work there's no deep relationship in your life that just flows to you with no work there's no friendships that flow to you with no work there's no careers or music proficiency or the arts or developing your craft all of anything in your life worth having has a pattern and a practice to it and so there is a pattern and a practice of developing the self-control so that we can, our souls can get unraveled out of the cultural narratives that lead us into discontent. I want to close with us just meditating on the goodness of Jesus. Did I say I was closing already? This is my second closing, sorry. In Gethsemane, Judas comes and he kisses Jesus, and Jesus is experiencing betrayal. But we see this glorious divine self-control. He doesn't defend himself to preserve himself, preserve his life. He lays down his life. He's on trial and he's a victim of injustice in the kangaroo courts. But he doesn't explode and lose control. He has self-control. He goes to the, court. He goes to the cross for you and for, I, for, for me. We are the, the, the nails in his hands, but he loves us anyways. He was forsaken so we could be forgiven. Cast out so we could be brought in. 
Now the guilt of our sin is gone. So the grip of discontent can be loosened so that we can live lives of grace and of gratitude. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. It's not an impersonal force. He's a person. He loves us. We are his. So may we run into his name. Let's pray.